Welcome to the Writers Institute podcast. I'm your host, Paul Grandall, the director of the New York State Writers Institute at the University of Albany. We're very excited about today's guest because she's a former colleague at the newspaper here in Albany. She was with the Knickerbocker News. I was at the Times Union. Pamela Newkirk is the author of a just-published book called Diversity, Inc., A Failed Promise of a Billion-Dollar Business. Before she became a professor of journalism at New York University, she's written a number of books, and she also worked at New York Newsday, where she shared in a Pulitzer Prize. She worked at uh, the Gannett uh, newspaper, in uh, the Gannett chain in Washington, D.C., and also at New York Newsday. Pamela, welcome back to Albany. Thank you. Such a pleasure. So we were talking at, at lunch earlier um, some of your students are writing for the New York Times, so there's hope for, for yeah. young journalism graduates in, oh, in yeah. this declining newspaper industry? Yes, but I don't think we should look at the industry as a newspaper industry. It's a news industry, and students today need to know how to write across platforms. So I think um, for students who are versatile, talented, hungry, there, there is work out there. So let's talk about, you grew up in Astoria, Queens. Well, and uh, that was my first home, yeah. Okay. I bounced around a little as a kid. So did you always want to be a journalist, you, you Pretty thought? Pretty much. From the time I was probably in junior high school is when I started writing for like little community papers, and then I wrote for my high school newspaper, and by college I knew that that's what I wanted to be. What newspapers did you read growing up? I don't even know, um, probably whatever my parents had in the house, which would be probably the Daily News, um, and by high school I was reading the New York Times. And how did you end up in Albany? Well, my husband (laughs) ended up, my husband worked for the governor, Mm -hmm. and um, uh, when we got married he had a job. First, he worked for the speaker, so I moved up here. Who was the speaker then? Stanley Fink. Fink. Yeah, so he was special assistant to Stanley Fink, and I actually worked for the New York State Assembly um, as a researcher, and I got my first newspaper job at the Knickerbocker News and never turned back. I mean, I stayed in journalism ever since. So we always consider the Nick was like the writer's paper. You seem to have more freedom about what you covered, how you wrote. What do you remember of those years? And you were covering state politics. Well, that's funny that you considered it the writer's paper. We considered it the grind because um, back then, if you covered a beat, you were expected to file, like, I think something like a story a day and two briefs. Right. And you had to to work on, like, a a long-form article. So They worked us hard. Oh, my God. (laughs) We had to write so much. But but that's where I applied my craft. Um, Before then, I had only written for... Um, weekly newspapers in New York, like the Amsterdam News, or any 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 newspaper that would let me write for them, I I just did it. Um, but the the Nick News was was my first daily newspaper job. So you're way ahead of me. You have a journalism degree. I never studied any journalism at the time where I feel you could learn on the job. Yeah, most people didn't Did you feel like the journalism degree was necessary to your work? No, because, you know, I started writing so long before I even went to college. I was being published before I I went to NYU in in weekly newspapers. I, I saw the 
journalism degree as I needed a degree. I mean, I always felt I had to go to college. I had to get a degree, and I always loved journalism, so I just did it. Um, so I, I, I never really thought that it was necessary to be in the business, and I don't know if it even helped me in the business because I, I, I think when I was hired at the Nick News, what they looked at were my clips. Right. That's how I got the job. Right. Um, but I think today uh, it's a lot different because we talked about this. Back then, you could really learn your craft in the newsroom. There were people, you know, helping you and, like, working with you. And, and they still had copy editors had cop- who, would, right. who would look over your work and, and make right. you better. They'd and say, here's a hole, here's you need to fill this. Exactly. Need, yeah. But there's very little of that guidance and, and mentorship that, that used to happen in the newsroom. Right. No one has time. No. Um, you know, everyone is like ripping and running, and it, right. you have to really hit the ground running when you. <laughs> although at the Nick News, I kind of had to do that anyway. Right. Um, I remember they sent me out on a story, and back then I didn't. I had only typed on a typewriter. I had never worked on a computer, and I remember right. I used to type my story first because I felt more secure having it right. typewritten and then I would go to the computer and like enter it and I remember Joanne Krupe the city editor saying you we don't have time for that I was the same way I had the last typewriter in the newsroom exactly. because when we first got they would crash all the time how old like, do we sound yes well I came to the same 1984 exactly class of 1984 right right but I, I still remember when when the computers were just coming in they would crash. You, you would be working for and an you, hour or two and, and you lost everything. And lose everything. Right. And I was so afraid of that that I, I would too. always type my story on the typewriter and, and I then were, take my little yes. copy over to the computer. <laughs> and that's when not everyone had a computer on their desk. <laughs> right. There were like six along a bank and we had right. to wait. I'd be like, when's that Newkirk going to finish her story? No, seriously. I'm waiting for yeah, her. yeah, yeah, yeah. We had so, to share computers. Yeah, but I was so afraid of the computer back then. Right. And, um, and Joey, I was like, no. But I learned how to write really quickly because right. I remember like the first time I ever had to file a story from a phone. Was that the yes. Nick News? Yes. Remember those days? When they had pay phones. Yeah, yes. you would go into mm-hmm. a phone booth right. and you'd have to write the story in your head right. or in a little piece of paper, whatever, you know, right. just to get it going. But I mean, to learn, like, even though I had a journalism degree, I never had that kind of real world experience. Right. Students today do. Right. I mean, that is how they learn. Right. Um, newspaper journalism, where we were learning from a textbook, pretty right. much. So let's talk. And you talk about it in the book. If I remember, were you the only African American reporter at the yeah. time? There and was then one, also there was one places. at the Knickerbocker News, and there was one at the Times Union. Ken, I forgot his name, but yes. the, but there was one yes. African American. Yeah, the, yes. each paper had one. <laughs> <laughs> but so what was that like? I mean, Albany was a fairly progressive area, but did you ever feel like you? faced racism on the job? Or, I wouldn't or, call it racism. I think people often were shocked when I would show up. Um, you know, some people made little comments like, Do, who writes the stories for you? Oh, or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I was going into neighborhoods where many of those people never really had interactions with an African-American. Right. So I was pretty much an aardvark. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but it didn't bother me. I mean, I grew up going to schools where I was often one of few African-Americans. So it wasn't foreign to me to be in that situation. I would imagine it would be difficult for someone who did not have 
the kind of experience I had growing up. Right. So let, let's talk a little bit about Diversity uh, Inc., because one of the areas you really look at is the newspaper industry, which mm. you came from. And I can remember editors often going to conferences for minority reporters, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, we, we never had many hires. And when <laughs> exactly. we are, are, like I say, you're one of our superstars, but uh, three African-American women who were great reporters, Theola Labbe went to the Washington Post, Lydia Polgreen went to the New York Times, mm-hmm. Albany was just like a quick stop. You went to Washington. Oh, it wasn't that quick. I was there, you were there four, for four years. years. <laughs> That's quick. I was there 33 years. Yeah, right. But um, so what, let's look at the newspaper industry. Why has it not really moved the needle on the number of minority I, there reporters? There is no good reason. Um, it, so there is a pipeline. Oh my! There's about. always been a pipeline. Yeah. Um, it, I remember, you know, being a young journalist and going to like National Association of Black Journalists right. conferences, and you'd have editors from every newspaper, and you'd have all of these young, eager, aspiring reporters who would like line up to be interviewed by Newsday, New York Times, New York Post, like. All of the editors from around the country would come to these job fairs, and very few people would get jobs. So that has been the case um, for my entire career, which is partly what what inspired me to look at this whole idea of diversity and how companies claim to um, to want it, and you know they hire these czars and they construct these major apparatus um, diversity apparatus. And yet, the the needle barely moves. Right. Yeah. Even journalism. I mean, we have a lot of colleagues and friends that that we knew from from you know thirty plus years ago. But even that industry, which seemed to have its heart in the right place, I'm, I'm trying to understand why fewer and and it might have was it better at the larger papers i never worked at a large well it's always better at the larger papers but the problem is to get to the larger papers you have to get into the smaller papers i mean that's where you get your training very rarely can you start at a major metropolitan newspaper you start at places like the nick news the times union right um and and so that is what has been the problem it's like getting in so that you can at some point, make it to a large paper. Right. So this book, were you kind of, this in the back of your mind when you were still uh, in daily journalism? I mean, you've been at no. the NYU for, for 20, 20, 26 20, years or yeah. 25 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're still a journalist. You're doing books. You're doing reporting. But was it that initial that you didn't see many people of color in the newsrooms? Well, you probably remember my first book is about race in the news media. Right. So my first book looks at the entry of African-Americans into mainstream newsrooms beginning in the 1960s after urban unrest kind of highlighted the the exclusion of people of color from like every major industry and, and journalism was just one of them. And so as a result of um, President Johnson's National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, the Kerner Report, many newsrooms opened their doors for the first time in, in the 1960s. And at the time, uh, journalists of color were like less than 1% of newsroom um, uh, you know, workers. And I think over 10 years, it was 4%. But now it's about 5%. So right. we're talking about <laughs> 50 right. years of having pretty much the same conversations about diversity 
And while we have more and more students of color studying journalism and having the training, the numbers are not really reflecting uh, that kind of shift. I pulled out for our evening discussion, we'll we'll talk much more in depth about this book, but I I pulled out some numbers that you use. And, and, you know, for instance, uh, whites make up 60%, so higher education, your other area of work, whites make up 60% of the U.S. population, have 81% of the full-time professorships. African Americans and Hispanics, 31% of the national population, but just 4% for African Americans, 3% for Hispanics right. at universities and, and I colleges. Think, Why I think is that? many Americans have a much rosier picture in their mind of the kind of progress that we've made. And while it is true that in the 70s, the doors began to swing open for people of color in fields from which they had been excluded, in the 1980s, the, the, the backlash to that progress has caused many of those numbers to either stall or actually reverse. So many of the gains that were made in the 60s and 70s have been erased. And But where does this money go? Is this why you call it the billion-dollar <laughs> business? I, because so each- here's Ivy League institutions. Brown, $165 million to diversity. Uh, Cornell, $60 million. Yale, $50 million. Dartmouth, $23 million. Johns Hopkins, $25 million. Where is that money going? Well, and well those initiatives are for faculty-targeted hiring um, to increase the, the faculty of color. Um, but what I'm writing about mainly is the big business of diversity. When you look at the number of diversity czars that companies hire and uh, diversity consultants and diversity conferences and diversity climate studies and, like, all manner of studies and money that is, is that just billions a, of dollars a year. A waste of money and it's just lip service or they just have the wrong solutions? Well, because I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I can't tell you what's in their minds. All I can tell you is that many companies are doing the same thing and, and they claim they're expecting different results. And right. you would think if you're spending billions of dollars and you're not moving the needle, maybe it's time to change course and do something right. different. I mean, you cite Google as a, as a perfect example. I've right. got to get their number. I, well, I think they spend it's over a hundred. They spend over a hundred million a year yeah. on diversity initiatives, and yet African Americans hold like two percent of tech jobs, right. and Latinos is a little bit and more it hasn't than moved that. Moved up despite that investment. It's moved very little uh, despite that investment. Yeah, two percent. So it would make you think that they would, like, come up with a new strategy. (laughs) Maybe what they're doing is not working. And, you know, and that's what I found, that many companies are doing the exact same things. And then, you know, every year they throw up their hands saying, oh, these numbers are so disappointing. Well, uh, maybe (laughs) there's another way to go about this. And, And the good news is that, um, in, in the process of doing the research, I did find uh, strategies that companies have used that have uh, borne fruit. Um, so, so one was, was through the courts, the, the lawsuit at Coca-Cola. That, that was a, a pretty dramatic turnaround. So 1999, the, the class action suit, uh, at the time, salary for white workers at Coca-Cola, median salary was $65,533 for black employees, 
36,596. Right. So they settle out of court. Right. And oftentimes, African Americans and whites in the same position right. uh, had showed that whites were making a lot more. So I guess, I guess they took it to heart because between <laughs> 2000 and 2005, you point out, Coca-Cola increased first its female senior leadership hires with women, mm-hmm. 8% to 27%. And minority leadership hires eight percent to twenty one percent. Right. So they can do it. Which shows it it can be done. Threat of a lawsuit. Well, in in their case, it took a lawsuit, but other companies have been sued and have not shown that kind of dramatic change. And it's it's the way they did it so systematically. Um, There was a lot of intention. There wasn't just lip service. It wasn't just a public relations uh, ploy. That they really took it to heart and they over five years examine the metrics across the country um, based on race and gender, and they actually um, could detect in real time were, were the salaries on an equal plane, were the bonuses on an equal plane, right. who was being hired, who was even being considered for jobs, what did the candidate pools look like. Right. They were able to to detect and then disrupt patterns of bias that's what you talk about a lot even in in higher ed which you also like the newspaper industry you think their heart's in the right place or they're on the right side of history but you show how flawed the search committee is in a lot of these you know there's no diversity representation on the search committee and the pool surprisingly offers no diversity well it's kind of hard in industries that have no diversity to have to have hiring searches that right. <laughs> that bring in diversity. Right. You know, part of the problem, you know, I'm not writing about Ku Klux Klan style racism. Right. I'm writing about the way we live in that, you know, we live in a really segregated society. Our social spheres are segregated. Mm. Our churches are segregated. Our schools are segregated. So not surprisingly, our workplaces are reflecting our social worlds. Mm -hmm. And that is a self-replicating kind of process. So without intention, these things don't just happen. I mean, it's something that you have to really look at and want to change. And I think uh, some think it's going to happen by osmosis, but we have to interrupt something that is problematic to begin with. (laughs) So you use the term, we are the world. Do do people think it's happening just because we say we're addressing it? Right. Well, part of the problem today is that diversity means everything, so it means nothing. So diversity right. is not just, you know, in the 60s, we were talking about racial diversity, right. and then we added gender diversity, and then we added sexual orientation diversity, and then we added the mentally and physically incapacitated incapacitated diversity and then we and then we kept expanding the term until it lost all meaning right. where you would have someone at Apple say that diversity could be uh, having uh, white men with blue eyes right so it just kind of undermined the whole idea of racial racial equality in dealing with historic omissions right right? because now that's kind of off the table because we're talking about oh we're just all you know about diversity well yeah kumbaya but what about racial diversity what about you know that 
age-old problem right. that this society has had, this, the historic exclusion of people of color, just based on race. So you find there's a few bright spots. One, uh, Columbia University Dental School, if I remember, mm-hmm. you know, actually put some of the practices, best practice into use, and, and significantly increased. But by significantly, it was maybe from like 7% to 12%. It wasn't like it it blew it off the doors, but that was considered a yeah, huge gain. But it but is. Something. I mean, it's progress. I mean, we're right. talking about many industries where the needle hasn't moved in decades. Right. <laughs> it's like, so if and you're moving from even 5 to 12%, that's that's pretty, you know, that's right. that's movement. So I also, uh, you, you talk about Hollywood and, and that moment from the Oscars uh, two years ago was a, was a great example that you use. Selma, which is a beautiful movie. Um, the Martin Luther King biopic was snubbed with its black director, Ava DuVernay. Black cast members also nominated for Oscars. And then that, that Oscars so white hashtag flashed right, up. Right, because and, for and two it, years in, in a row, none of the acting nominees were of color. Right. You know, they were all white for two years in a row, despite the number of films that had right. diverse cast. And I thought, didn't think people really thought about it, but the, the, the breakdown of the Academy. Right. 5,765 voting members, 94% white and 77% male. Right. That's an explanation for why only 4%, 4% of the Oscars were awarded to black actors in, over in 80, 80 years. years. See, exactly. So, so now, four years, has there been progress? I well, think there has. There I think ha- of like Moonlight. There has, but moon. see, th- see, this becomes the diversity kind of quagmire right so there's progress because there's this backlash right. to the lack of progress and then people think oh yeah well you got to give it to them just because right <laughs> but how about you excluded them for 80 years right. and maybe there should be a fairer process maybe we should consider other people um so it just becomes this whole problem where you you shed light on on bias and then you are th- it, you're depicted as someone who's asking for a handout mm-hmm. and it's like no we're asking for equality we're right. asking to for a fair chance to be considered right yeah i also like that that several people in your book and you as well Talk about how it's good business. It's not just a moral imperative. Uh, There's a lot of value proposition to having a diverse workforce. In what ways can you show that that it helps the bottom line of a company? Well, there have been a number of studies that show that, you know, diverse um, workplaces make more money. They have more innovation. Um, you know, they, you could find a number of studies that, that show that. And I guess for me, my my interest is more in living up to the ideals of our nation, e plublius unum, right. out of many one. Right. And, and having, you know, people like to think that we're in the situation we are, we're, that we're operating on a level playing field, and the reason why there there's no diversity in film and in fashion and in higher ed and in all these fields is because people of color are not up to the challenge. Right. And that is also dispelled just looking at the numbers of uh, people of color with advanced degrees coming out of some of the top universities in this country. In addition to looking at creative fields where 
that's not even a requirement and they're still shut out. Right. In fact, what I found is that the most progressive fields are the least diverse. Yeah, because you look at higher education, <laughs> media, right. and museums, Hollywood, and, yeah. how, you know, film. I mean, right. um, uh, fashion. They're the least diverse fields. Yeah. So, what's the solution? Fire all those chief diversity officers yeah. that didn't do their job, or what? Well, I mean, it's not the chief diversity officers who are not doing their jobs. It, this is a problem that starts at the top of an organization. You cannot farm out diversity to a consultant or to right. a chief diversity officer and then blame them for not getting the job done. A, a study, a survey this year of um, all of the top Fortune 500 diversity officers found that most of them don't have access to the metrics that would even allow them to see where the problems are and how they may do the kind of interventions that they did at Mm Coca-Cola. If you can't even see the numbers, (laughs) then how are you even doing your job? So most most don't have the resources, the support. Most of them feel pretty marginalized. They're not they're not rolled into the main of, of the institution. And without that, they, they're never going to be able to be right. successful. So they're set up to fail. And, and uh, you adapted an excerpt for the Chronicle of Higher Education, and it's pretty tough. You, you call out presidents that, that it really starts from the top, and they have not been really behind this effort. Can you talk about what the responsibility and the role of the, the very top of the leadership chain in colleges and universities. Well, this issue be. is not incentivized at the top. It's never going to happen. It doesn't even have a chance to succeed. Even when it is incentivized at the top, there's pushback. Diversity is not a popular <laughs> issue. Mm. And so, it, you know, if you're not up to the pushback that you get, if you're not um, – someone who's going to lead the charge on this issue, if you're going to, like, fold every time you get some kind of, you know, little uprising from your faculty, then it's it's not going to happen. Yeah. It takes leadership. That's what leadership is, right? So what are some other companies that Coca-Cola after the lawsuit or, you know, Columbia University, a couple that I found, what are some other companies that you I find mean, I, you good models? You can look at magazines that keep lists. I, I didn't yeah. do lists. I, I wanted to just look at examples of um, companies that ha- have changed from, like, being <laughs> found by the courts to, to discriminate and then right. how they changed over time. I'm sure there are other companies that have, have made the move, but... If you look at the metrics of companies across the board, many are not diverse. Right. It, Especially at the leadership level right. and, it, and at the board membership level. That's, that's, where you're, that's where companies are most lacking in diversity. Where do you find reason for optimism? Then? It seems pretty bleak. Basically, um, it, it's a very critical that it, it's been a failure. Corporations have well, failed to do what they yeah, said. Or, but you know that's that's the nature of the beast. That when companies can um, like hide in the shade, th- these things happen. And maybe when they're called out, you know things can change. Um, Coca Cola. You know, I, I don't think it's bleak. I th- I think many have been deluded by this sense that we've made more progress than we have. And my book is basically saying. 
not so fast. We <laughs> we were beginning to make progress, right. and then much of that progress has been erased because right. of partly because of this sense that we've already reached the mountaintop and we're a, now a post-race society. Mm. We're race. I mean, that's part of the problem. Right. There's this delusion around where we are. And, 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 you know, if people have a clearer sense of the problem, there is, there is a chance that more um, institutions will take to heart, you know, what's happening. Right. I hesitate to bring him up in this conversation, but I, I think it's, it's part of it. The, the elephant in the room, President Trump. Right. What do you think his almost three well, years I have think done it, to this? Well, I think his contribution to this discussion is it woke people up from this dream of a post-race society. You know, when Obama was elected, everyone was so quick to declare the civil rights movement over, that we will post-race, that we don't have to talk about that anymore, everything is fine. And it never was. We still mm. had major gaps in, in, in our society. We still had, um, you know, just systemic problems around race, uh, whether you're talking about housing, education, um, and while we were beginning to close many of those gaps, we took out our foot off the pedal and, mm. and the problems then began to fester. So, you know, if without intention and, and without um, attention, we're, we're going to continue to have this problem. We cannot continue to declare victory every time there's symbolic progress, which is what right. we did with Obama. That right. was an important you know, development in our history, but Obama was always a symbol of progress. He did not represent where African Americans as a group were in right. in this country. There were still um, major disparities in, in every social indicator, right. whether we're talking about health or or ed- education levels or you know the, the quality of our schools. The so. You know, none of that went away because Obama was president. Right. And, and what many people also forgot is that Obama never won the white vote. Mm-hmm. And I think there was just this whole idea that, uh, that white America had overcome some of its racial issues. Now, like I said, Trump's contribution is he's brought it out um, in a way that no one can deny the racial problems that many of us knew were there right. that people denied right can't deny it anymore no, exactly so let's talk about writing this book you 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 thank a lot of people in your acknowledgments you've got good colleagues and, and nyu has been very good to you um but talk about mcdowell colony for instance when you went to to work on this book mm-hmm uh, what about it? It was I mean, great. <laughs> yeah, but you got to stay in a famous cottage. I oh, I got to, so. yeah, I stayed in the cottage uh, where James Baldwin had stayed, and, and that was um, very inspiring. That's great. Yeah. And uh, so do you write in, in kind of bursts, or are you writing bits of it while you're doing the research, or do you get all your research and then go lock yourself away and write in a long stretch? How yeah, do you like to, to um, work on your books? Well, I, when I'm writing, I write every day. So I treat it like any job, yeah. kind of a nine-to-five job. Yeah. Start in the morning, go to lunch, go back, right. <laughs> end by five, six o'clock, yeah. have your life, and then do it again the next day. So you, you still 
are a journalist and, and also uh, an academic and a writer, do they all work together? Is it a tension between making time more for one than the other, or do they all merge together yeah, seamlessly? Uh, they kind of merge seamlessly. I don't really separate journalism from being a writer, researcher. I mean, being a scholar, I think right. it's all the same. Um, you know, scholar means probably that you have more of a historical context for what you're doing, um, that you may go deeper into history, um, deeper into research than you have the luxury of time to do as a, right. <laughs> as, as a journalist. Right. Um, but yeah, it, but I, I think I bring the same toolkit to my work um, now as I did as a reporter at the Knickerbocker News. I just have more time to do what I do. Right. And what, how have your, your students changed in 26 years? Are they, they're more adept at, at technology and things, I would think, but are they uh, as well-read? Are they as curious? Are they as motivated yeah, as when you, know, you started? You know, I think you always have a mixed bag when you look at any class, you know? You have everything from, like, that student who from the first day you know they're going to be, like, a star to the student who, like, maybe has potential if they'd only stop, you know, texting their girlfriend or boyfriend mm-hmm. and, like, pay attention. Like, you get you get such a range, and I, I think it's pretty much the same as it's always been, that, right. that range. Um, I think students who are um, more serious about news have a higher likelihood of getting a job mm-hmm. because they're the rare student. Right because so few students want to, like, do politics and do, you know, the kind of reporting that I used to want to do. Right. Um, entertainment has become sort of the big beat, which, like, right. when I was a young reporter, I would, like, oh, my God. That I wasn't mean, Woodward and Bernstein. Oh, that no. Yeah. I mean, that would be just, like, are you kidding me? Right. Like, it was barely considered journalism, and right. now that's, like so highly rewarded in in the field that not surprisingly more students want to do that kind of reporting right um so yeah the students who are like the the hard-nosed serious reporters are are getting snapped up yeah well that's great so congratulations on diversity inc the failed promise of a billion dollar business you've been on a book tour we're so happy that you're here at the university of albany and thanks so much for doing the writers institute podcast thank you so much for having me thank you pamela and we hope you'll come back next time and listen in to the writers institute podcast thank you no S left to give. She be saying it like this here, y'all. We tell ourselves stories in order to live.